Welcome to Asia-Pacific Defense Reporter, your go-to source for cutting-edge security insights in the region. Get ready for rapid-fire analysis and commentary from the Asia-Pacific with your host, Kim Bergman. Hello and welcome back. On August the 21st, the government made an announcement about a number of missile purchases. So without any further ado, let's have a quick look at those to begin with. First of all, there were 200 Tomahawk missiles that will go on air warfare destroyers. That's to be applauded. Uh, It'll give them a a lot of extra capability. But hang on, that was actually announced in March, or at least there was reporting of it in March when the Defence and Security Cooperation Agency notified Congress. Next, we have a batch of Argam anti-radiation missiles that will equip Super Hornet aircraft and eventually F-35s. Again, good commendable decision, but hang on. Also announced in March. Then we had a second tranche of HIMARS. I've reported on this online. There seems to be something wrong with the pricing on that one. I initially estimated that Australia appears to have paid maybe a billion dollars more than we needed to. I've reduced that to 800 million. I've seen other commentaries suggesting that it's 600 million too much. It's a lot of money that at the moment isn't making sense. So I'm doing my best to get to the bottom of that one. The chances, of course, of actually coming up with any detail, given the attitude of defence, are pretty close to zero. Now, there was also a smaller contract Again, good news for the Israeli company Rafal with the Spike anti-tank guided weapon. They have a joint venture in Australia with Vali for local production. The Spike is the Western world's most successful anti-tank guided weapon. I'm sorry to sound so negative, but there are just certain basic facts that I think need to be pointed out. Now, Army started the process of acquiring a new generation anti-tank guided weapon back in 2014. In 2018, the two ministers responsible, Christopher Pine and Maurice Payne, announced that the spike had been selected. And we've had to wait, or Rafael and Vali have had to wait, for five years for a contract. And one really wonders what Defence has been doing in the meantime. And also, in the fine print of the announcement, it says that Rafael and Vali will deliver the first spike next year, but it doesn't indicate where it's coming from. It could be a direct sale from Israel. It says that the joint venture will present options to government for local manufacture. So even that isn't guaranteed. We're just going to have to wait and see. The announcement was made by Patrick Conroy, but speaking of which, he also had a leading role at the ALP National Conference on AUKUS and nuclear-powered submarines, and I'm sorry, I wasn't actually planning that far in advance to talk again about submarines, but because it was a feature of the National Conference, there were a few things that were said there that I just have to comment on. The first thing about it that grated with me was the statement from Minister Conroy that basically anybody who disagreed with AUKUS is somehow an appeaser. And he conflated that with a reference to Pig Iron Bob. This was a a, a very important event for the Labour movement in 1938. And I'll 
just give you a bit of background because Conroy's interpretation of it seems to be totally mangled and not really aligning at all with the facts because what happened in the late 1930s was that the 1938 in particular, the Australian trade union movement had become concerned by Japan's invasion of China the year before and had called for Australia to stop sending iron ore to Japan to fuel the war machine that was being used very brutally against the people of China. Now, this came to a head in very late 1938 when at Port Kembla, some trade unionists actually refused to load a further shipment of iron ore to Japan. There was a political crisis. The Attorney General of the day was Robert Menzies, who, of course, went on to become Australian Prime Minister. He threatened the union movement with the the use of the Transport Workers Act, colloquially, colloquially known as the Dog Collar Act, because it was so harsh, it was so repressive. The dispute lasted for, for several weeks, and it culminated finally in a suspension of the shipment of iron ore to Japan. Now, this reference to pig iron Bob has always been used to disparage Sir Robert Menzies, as in he was the one who was in favour of continuing iron ore shipments. These things would then be turned into bullets and eventually would be fired back and would kill Australian soldiers. So for Pat Conroy to talk about people objecting to AUKUS or being uncertain about AUKUS, and I'm certainly in that latter category, as somehow equivalent to pig iron bob, just doesn't make any sense. Because in this case, the appeaser was the government of the day, which continued to ship iron ore to Japan, and the people who were trying to safeguard Australian lives were, in fact, the unionists who took industrial action to try and stop it happening. Now, if, if we look at what's occurring today, and if China is now the big threat, surely the appeaser would be the government that is continuing to ship iron ore to China that's being turned into weapons of war. I mean, that's how I see it. I can't really imagine any other interpretation of the circumstances is possible. I, I think that that Pat Conroy, when he talks about appeasement, actually needs to look at the position of the government when it comes to trade. And certainly, I also resent the inference that, that I've received on many occasions that anybody who dares question AUKUS is somehow disloyal or unpatriotic. I reject that entirely. For example, unlike either the Defence Minister or the Defence Industry Minister, I would like to see defence spending increased and for a far more rapid acquisition of capability take place, such as the purchase of three squadrons of Predator B armed UCAVs or the fast tracking of Corvettes. Another recurrent theme at the conference was that AUKUS or the nuclear powered submarines would create 20,000 well paid union jobs. Now, that was 
stated by the Prime Minister, by Richard Miles and by Pat Conroy, 20,000 well-paid unionised jobs. But the question is, in, in what century are these jobs going to occur? They relate only to the, really, to the Australian construction of the AUKUS nuclear-powered submarine that supposedly is going to be co-designed with the British and on which work will start, if we're lucky, in the 2040s. Now, there might be some facilities work a bit before then. There might also be a small amount of work for the rotational Virginia-class US submarine force, some wharves to be lengthened and some concrete to be poured, but really that's just about it. By way of comparison, in the UK, BAE Systems, which is still building astute-class submarines and dreadnought-class SSBNs, and is preparing for the future AUKUS submarine, they employ a total of 10,000 well-paid jobs. Whether they're unionised or not, I don't know. So how we have come up with this figure of 20,000, double the size of the entire BAE system submarine building enterprise is beyond me. And what I can say, clearly, it's a made-up number. There's no substance to it whatsoever. And again, typically, defence always refuses to release the costings behind these. So politicians grandstand and, and they say 20,000 jobs and some people say, oh, that all sounds nice. But as I say, in, in, in what decade? And the other part of this, which is pretty close to a deception, the situation is it's not 20,000 well-paid unionised jobs in 2050 compared with nothing because the Collins class was always going to be replaced by another submarine. It's 20,000 future jobs versus the possibility of, let's say, 8,000 well-paid unionised jobs from 2025 if we were to build an interim conventional submarine. And I believe that's something that seriously needs to be looked at for several reasons, including continuity of submarine shipbuilding so that we have an existing workforce that could transition from conventional submarines to nuclear submarines. Also, it would be a mechanism for submarine crew training that we could build up greater numbers of experienced submarine operators so that if and when nuclear-powered submarines become available, we actually have enough people to crew them. But look, let's return to 1938, since that's something that, that Pat Conroy has emphasised, and the threat of war with Japan. And let's overlay that with the AUKUS nuclear-powered submarine timetable. The first part of it being an as-yet-uncontracted half-promise that the US will sell a second-hand, I do emphasise second-hand, Virginia-class submarines in the 2030s when their own domestic production has ramped up. So that's a minimum of 10 years in the future, but more likely 15, if at all. Now, just imagine in 1938, with the drums of war beating and China already having been invaded, imagine what the reaction would have been if the Prime Minister and the Defence Minister had said, we are in the process of increasing our vital submarine force to deter war, and that will begin in 1953 if all goes well. And 
since a single nuclear-powered submarine isn't going to deter China, we won't be safe until we have at least four of them in the water so that at least one of them will always be available. And since the Virginia class are not particularly reliable, that's just a matter of fact, it's not not me bad-mouthing the Virginia class, they just have maintenance problems, that would be like saying, to to get to four Virginia-class submarines, that would be like saying in 1938, our effective deterrent will be in place by 1964. It's, it's, I think it's just a nonsense. And in fact, our submarine situation numbers are even more dire than I've indicated because the Collins life of type extension starts in 2026. And that means that even if it proceeds on schedule, a Collins class submarine gets taken out of service for two years meaning that we will only have five Collins class available until 2038. If the life of type extension takes longer, if it takes three years rather than two, which personally I think is likely, it means we will only have five Collins class submarines available until 2044. Now, speaking of availability, I also have to mention that our three air warfare destroyers are also being upgraded, also starting in 2026, and they will be progressively taken out of service for two or three years. So at any one time, we will only have two of them available to go to sea, and and of those, whether both or one or none will be available, we just don't know. So that means our entire Tomahawk inventory, remember I mentioned that, is going to be committed to two ships maximum. I'm sure China will be shaking in their boots about that. The most effective platform from which to deploy Tomahawks would have been the Collins-class submarine, but the torpedo tube launch version of Harpoon has gone out of production and we were too slow to order it. Anyway, let's get back to AUKUS and nuclear-powered submarines and the ridiculous timeframes about what's involved here because this supports my proposition that AUKUS isn't really about submarines. It's sort of this cult status where either you're a member of the cult and just nod and go along with a lot of things, or you're not a member and you're left scratching your head about various aspects of it. And I'll just, for the sake of brevity, mention two examples of cult magical thinking that no one associated with AUKUS has been able to explain to me or anyone else. The first, which I've touched on before, is the disposal of the radioactive reactor cores at the end of the life of the Virginia-class submarines. Why we have agreed to do that, I do not know. People simply say, oh, that's a problem for the future. It will sort itself out. Well, hang on. A 10,000-ton submarine has to be cut apart The reactor vessel, which is still at a temperature of many hundreds of degrees, has to be cut open. The highly radioactive, highly enriched uranium has to be removed. It's absolutely toxic. All of the radioactive stuff has to be transported to a safe facility, which has not yet even been built. And yet members of the August group just kind of blithely say, Oh, it'll take care of itself. Well, personally, I would like to know a little bit more about that. Another example of the AUKUS cult 
magical thinking is that somehow with these second-hand Virginia-class submarines, that the US won't cut off access to spare parts if hostilities suddenly break out and if they prioritise their own fleet. I've already described in a previous episode, this is exactly what happened with Britain and our Oberon submarines when the Falklands War broke out. I have no doubt, because it's just simply logically the way that things would work, if a war broke out with China, the United States Navy would simply say, no more spare parts going to anyone other than US submarine operators. What would we do then? We've got one, two, or three Virginia-class subs tied up alongside. Again, the members of the cult only indicate it's not an issue, but they can't explain why. But it's even the thinking is even worse than that, because this isn't just about acquiring nuclear-powered submarines. It's about acquiring nuclear-powered submarines from either the US or Britain, because there are a couple of other options, the nuclear-powered Barracuda done by the French in Australia, which would be available in 2032. Some people object, well, that's powered by low-enriched uranium, it would have to be refueled. But what's wrong with building some sort of facility? We will have to construct some sort of nuclear infrastructure to handle the waste from the US submarines that we've agreed to anyway. Now, here's a little secret. Why not cooperate with South Korea? As you know, I'm very fond of South Korea. This isn't known publicly, but I can assure you that the South Korean Navy is interested in nuclear-powered submarines, and they have studied it, I think, in some detail. I don't know any anything more than that, but knowing them as I do, it would already have been pretty rigorous. If we really want the most cost-effective nuclear-powered submarine, the most modern that also guarantees Australian sovereignty, why not three-way discussions, Australia, the US and South Korea, to cooperate on fast-tracking an Australian-built nuclear submarine and leave the sclerotic British economy completely out of it? Now, the reason why none of this is happening, this is my theory, is because AUKUS is not about submarines at all. It is a return to the strategic comfort of the Anglosphere. It suits both the government and the coalition to go along with this because the alternative would be to lay down the law, the the, the ministers, the prime minister, to lay down the law to the ADF and defence. For ministers to actually take charge of what is going on and say, I've listened to your complaints, but you are to commence work immediately on fast-tracking new conventional submarines, the first of which must be in the water by 2029. The last time this sort of political courage and nerve was shown by Kim Beasley and the Hawke Keating Prime Ministers at the time. And the things like, we have listened to your objections about why half the fleet cannot be relocated to Western Australia, and we are now ordering you to do it. We have listened to all of your objections about why government-owned facilities like Williamstown Naval Dockyard should not be sold, and we are now ordering you to do it. We have listened to all of your arguments about why Australia should have another aircraft carrier to replace HMAS Melbourne, and we are now telling you that you aren't getting one. If ministers had the courage 
to actually direct defence as to what they should be doing, the outlook might be quite different. But no one has the nerve to do it. Also, you'd have to say money is not going to be a problem. The government would have to commit to an increase in defence spending. And why, with all of this background about what's happening in China, there's not more appetite for that? Again, that's another mystery for me. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to wrap up because of time constraints. I was hoping to get to the very funny and, and also very meaningful story of the time that Air Force officers actually literally ran and hid from a group of Australian journalists. I promise I'll do that next time. It's a very illustrative example of what has been going wrong in Australia. Now, rather than doing the questions that defence won't answer, of which I have a myriad, I'm going to modify that slightly by saying requests for interviews that I've put in. And a current one is a request to interview the Chief of Navy, Vice Admiral Mark Hammond. This is for the November edition of APDR, which is the one for the Indo-Pacific Conference and Exhibition. And I think over the last 10 years, every Chief of Navy has agreed to be interviewed for that particular edition for pretty obvious reasons. So the sequence so far is this. I submitted a request for interview on the 23rd of June, as I'm obliged to do formally to the department. On the 3rd of July, the department notified me that my request had been agreed to and they were in the process of lining something up. Then more than a month went by. I'd heard nothing at all. I sent a follow-up on the 9th of August. The reply including, uh, included that I should submit a list of questions, which, by the way, I sent through immediately. I mean, some journalists don't like the idea of, um, of revealing their questions in advance. They prefer more of a sort of an ambush style of trying to trick people up or embarrass them or whatever. That's not my intention. My intention for, I save that sort of stuff up for the politicians. When when I'm, I'm dealing with the department and uniformed people, my aim only is to get as much accurate information as possible. Okay. So I sent through a comprehensive list of questions hadn't heard anything further, sent a follow-up email on the 23rd of August. I've received a reply that the Chief of Navy has been busy but is aware of my request. Now, I've got to conduct this interview because of publishing deadlines by early October, and I'm getting a sinking feeling, pardon the pun, that Chief of Navy is going to be too busy. I hope I'm wrong, but I've asked tricky questions about things like the second-hand Virginia-class submarines and their disposal. Anyway, Admiral Hammond, if you or your staff are listening to this, we haven't met, but I hope that we will speak, be speaking in the near future. Okay, everyone, again, I'm over time. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, I'll tell the Air Force officers running away story next time. That's a promise. All the best. Bye. That's today's Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter. For more in-depth articles, expert opinions and exclusive interviews, visit asiapacificdefensereporter.com. Stay informed, stay ahead. This is your source for all things defence. Until next time.